Welcome to a playoff edition of the Salt City Hoops podcast. This is Dan Clayton, the associate editor of saltcityhoops.com, true hoop affiliate covering Utah Jazz basketball. And I'm joined, as usual, by Ken Clayton. Ken, how's it going? Hey, pretty good after last night. Can't complain. Correct, correct. The Jazz, um, actually it looks as though the Jazz will be the only Western Conference road team to sneak game one. We're recording this during Houston OKC, and OKC's kind of falling apart here. So it it looks as though Houston, San Antonio, and Golden State will have all held court, um, and yet the, the Clippers fell to the Utah Jazz, the team that we're here to talk about and cover at SaltCityHoops.com. And uh, I mean, wow, Ken, what a game, what a finish. I don't I don't know what where to start, whether to start with what happened in the last second or whether to start with what happened in the first 10 seconds. Um, but obviously an eventful evening of basketball for the Utah jazz. Yeah. I mean, you've already mentioned the, the, the high and the low, and it was a roller coaster type of game as we, uh, as you look at the, at the whole thing, I, there were a lot of people, uh, <laughs> including maybe you tweeting like, Oh, well, um, give up. You didn't say give up, but I think that's what I saw you tweet after the uh, first 10 seconds. I wonder what else I could do tonight or something like that. No, 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 no. My my what what's good on TV tonight tweet was well before the game. It was it was a little while before oh, the game. Okay. That was me being coy about, you know, Understood. I'm super excited about watching playoff basketball. And um, so, yeah, that was that was sarcasm. However, I did tweet. Okay. I misunderstood because there were several other people who were, who were like, "Oh, this is terrible. We might as well no, not throw the game, but we have no chance now." That yeah. sort of thing. I mean, uh, you know, I'll be honest, um, and and my, <laughs> I think my Twitter feed will back this up. Like, I was I was stunned. Obviously, what we're talking about here is that moment when Rudy Gobert, Rudy Gobert bangs knees with Luke Richard Mahamute. Um, Rudy left the game, wouldn't return status for the series is you know kind of up in the air um i I think i was just shell-shocked i think i was dumbfounded it didn't feel like it could be real you know after everything that the jazz um kind of went through over the course of the year and then to finally get healthy just mostly healthy howell netto is still working on rehabbing that ankle um but to finally get mostly healthy and and then, you know, 10 seconds in to an insanely competitive guy's first ever playoff game. It just, it was surreal. And I think I was just sitting there watching the game in a daze for a few minutes after that. Yeah, I agree. It was uh, just, you, you spend all this time, you know, you're, you're, you're 82 games building up to this. We as jazz fans are so excited after such a long gap from being in the playoffs and 10 seconds in, it feels like the air comes out, and you're like, holy cow, did we just uh, lose <laughs> the the defensive anchor and, 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 in my opinion, the heart of the team in a lot of ways. It's, uh, yeah. It's pretty crazy. Well, um, you know, at worst, Gobert is the Jazz's second-best player, and I think there are a lot of 
smart analytics, smart metrics that point to him being maybe maybe the best or, or at least, you know, kind of the more important, the most important to their identity. So so it was a it was a big one for sure. And I, you know, I felt like even the players and I don't know, maybe this was me projecting, but did it feel to you for a couple of minutes like even the players were just kind of going through the motions and sort of not sure where to go from there? Or was that just me? No, I think absolutely. They, they quickly went down 7-2, and it wasn't just the score, because a five-point deficit in the first five minutes of a game is nothing. But it, it just felt like they had to wrap their heads around, you know, the loss of of Rudy Gobert in the middle, whether it was, whether it's, I mean, it's not even necessarily defensively or offensively. It was just the idea of we just lost a guy who we have been able to rely on for 81 out of 82 games this year, and we don't know. I'll tell you, watching that thing, I I would not have guessed that. I mean, we haven't heard any real specifics yet about a potential return, but, boy, I didn't think it looked good at all. I, I was put me in the camp that I was thinking, huh, I wonder if he'll be ready for training camp. That was – it just did not look good watching him try to crawl up the floor after that. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, for sure that was – that was on my mind as a possibility. I mean, you never know because you've also seen, <laughs> not to not to equate the two, but we've also seen Paul Pierce leave the court in a in a wheelchair, right, and then come back a few minutes later. So, you know, you, you never know, and everybody's bodies react differently in that moment, and and then you know you walk it off and you realize, oh, I you know I complete, you know, you never know. Um, I think. I think once we heard that it was for sure sprained, which I mean, let's just not to play a, a Twitter to a podcast doctor here, but I mean, the the word sprain when your when your knee is sprained, like that means that there's, you know, that there's tension, that there's at least a, a tiny tear or or pull or, um. So when we heard that, I, I you know, I certainly was thinking, well, he's he's probably done for these playoffs you know what i mean um and and i mean dang i could understand why the players would be stunned thinking about that reality um without by the way and i think this is the this is the impressive part like it's not like you know quinn snyder went into that game with a game plan you know a a specific approach on here's how we're going to guard guys here's what we're going to do they made the sub from Rudy to Fave without a timeout, without anything, and just kind of went about executing whatever their game plan had been. So however important Gobert was going to be to what to the way they were going to play the Clippers, um, the, the Jazz just sort of rolled with it, and which, which was impressive. But like I say, for a couple minutes there, it seemed like they were as speechless and nonplussed as all of us were watching at home. Right. And, you know, understandable, especially after the season they've had with, uh, you know, dealing with injuries, feeling like they could have been, you know, even had a little higher seed if they had been healthier. And, you know, every, every team can say that to a certain extent. But uh, and then to have this happen just when they get to, you know, kind of the goal for the season or one of the goals for the season to make the playoffs and 10 seconds in crazy. Yeah. Um, the, the moment that that I think stuck with me um and this is a guy who didn't have a phenomenal game. I mean, I mean, you know, he did a lot of nice things, but overall, Joe Ingles was uh, two for seven from the field, a couple of assists, a couple of boards. But you know, he's had he was one for five from three. He's had much better nights, 
But the moment that kind of stuck with me, and and again, maybe I'm speaking for myself more than I'm speaking for the other guys that I was watching play basketball. Um, but the moment that kind of woke me up and, and said, oh yeah, you know, there's still basketball happening was when a couple minutes after the, you know, the Rudy mishap, Joe Ingles went down and, and just stuffed J.J. Redick. And he played really good defense on Redick throughout the course of the night. You know, he just ripped the ball away from him once. He just kind of blanketed him on a, on a bunch of other plays, fought through screens, all those things. But that moment when he blocked him, it just sort of seemed to spark something, again, at least in me and maybe in the team, that, uh, that you know, hey, we're, we're not done. We're, you know, one guy's back in the locker room, but there's a whole bunch of other guys out here ready to play basketball. And I, I thought that was a big moment for Jingles. Yeah, I think that was the key section. And then there was a right at the end of the first quarter and, and the game had evened out a bit by then. I think uh, Diao came out and uh, scored at least five of his points right in quick succession, maybe all seven uh, right at the end of the first quarter. I can't remember if the, if that third bucket was at the same time, but he he came out again at a, at a crucial time because that was after they'd lost Gobert. Favors had two fouls. Withy had two fouls. That's the point where, you know, again, uh, pull the emergency cord and uh, Diao was what they had to play center, and he actually uh, hit the three and, and had a jam, and then I, I just don't remember if he had a third basket at that point, but he he saved the day in a very limited role, saved the day at the end of the first quarter when I thought they might have some serious trouble. Yeah, he had five at the end of the first quarter. Um, he also had six assists for the game. So again, in a, in a night when... And the other thing that I'm sure we, we can talk about and we will talk about as the series go, goes on <clears throat> is the way that Mahmute plays Gordon Hayward is just really effective. I, I mean, he limits Gordon's ability to get to the basketball, to do things with the basketball. Uh, he limits Gordon's ab- ability to become a facilitator because he's expending so much energy just to get open. And uh, so on a night when... You, you can't maybe expect Gordon to be the engine to the whole offense, although he did have three assists. Um, I just thought Diao's overall performance with those with those six dimes was pretty important. Yeah, no, I, I, uh, and I did check Diao's third bucket was at the start of the second. So he, pulled, he, he scored his seven points in a four-minute stretch of the game when, uh, you know, they needed him because uh, everybody, everybody else over six, nine was was either in the in the uh, locker room or on the bench with <laughs> um, I'm sure we'll get to to Joe Jesus and all the heroics at the end but just before we jump forward you know 40 minutes in time um, anyone else that that you just thought you know beyond we've talked a little about jingles a little about Diao um, other heroes of game one in LA uh, well you can't you can't talk about that game without talking about Derek Favors, who, you know, again, well, I think it was by that time, 17 seconds into the game, had become, um, you know, his role expanded greatly from what I think it would have been. And uh, he answered the bell. He went in play a perfect game, but actually 7 out of 10 is, uh, is, is pretty close. Um, he's a little overmatched size-wise by uh, DeAndre Jordan, but he, he uh, played very well. Yeah. Uh, I read a I read a quote and I I'm I don't remember who I read this from. It was probably something that either Andy Larson or Tony Jones or or Jody Genesee was tweeting from uh, from the Jazz's practice today in L.A. 
but someone was someone quoted him as saying that it's the most nervous he's ever been for a basketball game and you know he certainly didn't know before the basketball game that he was going to be called upon with 11 minutes and 43 seconds remaining in the first quarter so what he meant by that is just he was you know and, and that was a reminder to me of like oh yeah this is a guy who as much as as we think of him as sort of a staple of the jazz and and an important player and you know, has been in the past when he's healthy, kind of a quasi-star level player. Here's another guy who has still never started a playoff game. Um, until yesterday, he had never won a playoff game. Like, this is a guy who was part of that 0-4 sweep in 2012, and that's his only playoff experience. So no wonder he's nervous, and, and that makes it all the more impressive that he was able to come in and, you know, despite fatigue, having not played extended minutes really for months, come in and, and shoot seven for 10, 15 points, six boards, a couple of assists and uh, and a block, a block shot. Yeah, a block shot. Um, yeah, I, th- I thought he was I thought he was tremendous around the rim. Um, he wasn't as good guarding in space as we used to think he is. And, and I st- still think he can get back there. Um but he was just, he was vitally important. And again, I, I think a real key to the Jazz being able to continue to defend the way that they wanted to defend, even though obviously the game plan was a little bit different after after the Rudy injury. Oh, yeah, 100%. And, and the, the thing about Favors, too, is, uh, you know, I get what you're saying, that he came in and, and kind of thrown into the spotlight a little earlier than he expected. And I hadn't seen the thing about him being nervous. But uh, yeah, I mean, a great, a great job, a bigger role than he had. I don't know what I was going to say. But let me ask you that. So you probably living in Brooklyn had the, uh, I assume the, the ESPN feed for the game, not the local Utah feed like I did. Yep. So what, what do you think? Was it just fatigue, or did you, did you buy into any of what Doug Collins was saying that he looked hurt down the stretch? Uh, I think he looked. So Derek today said that his knee is fine and that there was no discomfort. And I'm sure that NBA players never lie about their. <laughs> I guess I guess what I would say is this: He looked to, to me, at the very least, like someone who had no lift. Yeah. Um, in fact, I was rewatching a bunch of the Jazz's offensive possessions today, and um, and and it was a scoring play for Hayward. I don't I don't remember the specifics. It was a scoring play, but even the way he scored was like he was falling over and kind of flipped the ball up over his shoulder and it went in and it was a great shot, but it was like, that is, that is not the way Derek favors usually attacks the basket. So I'm not ready to say that Derek's at a hundred percent. I'm not going to call him a liar. I'm not going to say that, he, you know, like he's, he's probably, um, he's probably mostly fine if he's out there saying that he doesn't have any discomfort in the knee. Um, but you know, he doesn't have the same explosiveness and he hasn't played 31 minutes in a really long, actually 32 minutes and 16 seconds. He hasn't hit the 32 minute mark for a really long time. I don't know. Is that is well, that what you saw? Uh, that that's what I saw and what I hoped. And, and but I'm also still curious. You know, how does his body react the next two days, which you know, gratefully are rest days, um, to playing that many minutes? for the first time in a long time. But hopefully he's fine because, I mean, I don't think no matter what the prognosis is, I, I'm, I'm not expecting to see number 27 on Tuesday night So for game two. The last time he played 
um, more than the last time he exceeded 32 minutes and 16 seconds was on March 3rd against Brooklyn. He played just over 33 and a half. Um, he played 32 and a half in that in that game at Dallas where the Jazz led big and then kind of started celebrating and goofing around and Dallas came back. Um, and that might be it for the... Nope, there's a 34 minutes in a win at Minnesota. Um, so bottom line, Derek is just not a guy who whose body is probably accustomed to 32 minutes and especially 32 minutes in the, in the very physical... Um, you know, sort of grab and grind version of, of basketball that gets played in the playoffs. Um, you know, the, the guy who, and it, and it almost sounds like contradictory to say this because we're talking about, you know, again, either the Jazz's best or second best player, but the guy who I think people look past his, his, his game in an overall sense, um, when you look at everything and the macro and all the factors that influenced it, I think 19 points, 10 rebounds, and three assists for Gordon Hayward, given, again, what he was facing in terms of the defense, um, given that he didn't have the league's second-best role man to take pressure off of him when he had the ball out front. Um, I just thought his game was was really good. Um, you know, he wasn't hitting shots. He wasn't getting the daylight he needed from three-point land. That's why he only took one three-point shot, and he missed it. Um, you know, th those are those are aberrations for Gordon and, and things that maybe the Jazz can solve for when they go into a game. You know, they didn't they they didn't just play a game without Rudy. They played a game without Rudy that they didn't game plan for. And and so I think, you know, on Tuesday night, maybe the Jazz can figure out other ways to take some pressure off of Gordon. But um, I just thought I thought his game was better than better than is being talked about. Let's put it that way. Right. Well, you, they would have. I mean, just you look at that very first play. Where were they going? Hayward was creating a play. It was going to go there until he crumpled on the floor. Um, just having a go bear out there, by definition, it would have loosened up or freed up a little bit of space for Hayward because there's always the there's always the possibility of the dive to the rim and the and the lob for go bear. So certainly, uh, three days to prepare. Hopefully they free that up a little bit because, yeah, he was uh, blanketed most of the time. Yep. Um, and, and then, I, you know, I guess now's as good a time as any to talk about to talk about ISO Joe. Um, you know, he helped with that. I think he was one of the guys. In fact, all three of Joe Johnson's assists were to Hayward. So part of it was that Joe was able to directly get Hayward involved and, and get Hayward some looks that he might not have gotten otherwise. But also just... The, the way that Joe, I think, responded to, um, you know, hey, I'm going to have some guys on me that aren't defensive aces because Luke Richard Mahamuthe is, is worried about, about Hayward. Um, Joe just hit several big shots all night. Um, his threes were all kind of open threes after the defense collapsed. So they were, you know, floor spacing threes. And, and I don't say that to take away from them. Like, those are still important shots. And, and you, you know, the guy that's open at the end of that play still has to make it. If they miss it, like Mac did and like Dante Exum often does, then, you know, so like, it's still, it's still an important thing, but I think I was more impressed with some of the work he was doing on his inside shots, just sort of patiently and deliberately um, working against mismatches, working against switches, 
Um, he, he had the big shot to end it. He had a shot with just over a minute left that put the Jazz up by five. And, you know, again, at the time, it felt like a decently big shot. In retrospect, the Jazz probably don't win if he doesn't make that shot. Um, you know, it was a shot where he where he got a mismatch and, and he went down and kind of slowly worked into the paint until he was close enough for a floater. Not not unlike the uh, not unlike the game winner. So I just thought Joe was so important, so vital all night. And I mean, that's exactly the type of performance for which Dennis Lindsay went out and uh, went out and got veterans like Joe Johnson. Yeah, well, and you can say in a two-point game, every, every shot was uh, they needed it. Um, but, but yeah, he definitely was a closer. What impressed me looking afterward, uh, three steals in addition. So he had some assists. He had some steals. He was doing a lot of things on the court to lift that team. And uh, the la- that last sequence was just so many good decisions made which surprised me because I don't look at the Jazz at the end of a quarter end of a game as always making good decisions. But uh, on April 15th, they did. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, they, di- they did suffer, by the way, a 6-1 to one run um, after that Joe Johnson floater. That's why it, that's why it was tied for the, for the buzzer beater. Um, so, I mean, you know, they made some mistakes down the stretch. Guess what? Everybody makes some mistakes down the stretch. And the Clippers have guys who have been in those situations. So it's not terribly surprising that they were able, able to make big plays in the, in, you know, sort of that 50 second span between a minute left and 13 seconds left. Um, but, but then, you know, the, the big play, I mean, <laughs> that was, um, I don't know about you. I like, I saw the shot go in and then I didn't see anything else because I think I stood up in a way that flung a, a couch cushion and I, you know, I took, recover and replace everything in its proper order before I can go back and actually watch the, the aftermath of the shot. Um, your thoughts on just the shot, the final play, the sequence. Oh, I don't know. I, I tweeted a little bit about it last night. I mean, the decision not to call a timeout, I think was the right decision, not just because it worked, but even at the time in the, in the moment, I thought that's good. Do not take the timeout. You've got 12, 13 seconds. Just go. Cause you're already tied. They weren't looking to win from behind. They were they were playing on house money, so yep. they had five minutes if they. That was good. Um, I had not noticed, even even though I watched it several times, I had not noticed. You know, Hayward kind of motioned for the ball, and uh, Joe took it anyway. Jo, you know, Joe Johnson took it anyway and didn't pass it off to him. You mean in the backcourt there when he kind of comes in behind Joe? Yeah. Yep. Exactly. Then they go over, and I don't know. I don't know how planned it was. It didn't. It didn't sound like it was from the quotes after, but uh, Johnson went straight to Ingles, and Ingles set the same pick he'd been setting, setting up that Crawford mismatch, which they'd been using as much as they could in the second half. And, I mean, that's that's huge. You've got Crawford, who was one of the worst defensive players in the league at this point. Um, and, well, I don't know he was ever great, but certainly at this point uh, not as good as he maybe ever was. And uh, he, you know, that was the right matchup. That was, that was right where they needed to go. And then the fact that Johnson has... I'd never thought of this before, but I mean, he really kind of reminds me of, you know, back to a Dantley. He doesn't, he actually has more size than Dantley, but there was a timing thing. Dantley, how he could ever get free at, at a 6'4", 6'5", guy against bigger guys was amazing, but it was it was all about timing and angles, and that's what Johnson's got. He, we call him, you know, sometimes he gets called Slow Mo Joe, so does Ingles, but uh, he, 
he's just on his own time. He knows when he wants to take that shot. And, his, and so then the last decision that was made after getting the mismatch he wanted was just to move, take that shot when, when he wanted to take it, not leave three seconds on the shot clock for Chris Paul or Reddick or Crawford to come up with some shot to take the, to take the game back. So it was a, it was a great sequence. And, uh, I didn't hear, unlike Paul George, I didn't hear Gordon Hayward complain. <laughs> the ball. Yeah. Yeah. That was something. Um, yeah, I mean, Hayward looked legitimately happy at, at the outcome, obviously, and I, you know, the shot went in, so it, it's a, it's a different thing, you know. Maybe C, uh, maybe Paul George looks equally happy had C.J. Miles' shot gone in in the Indiana game. Um, well, yeah. So, so first of all, regarding the timing, I, I joked last night that it's it's funny, you know, he had to get that floater up high to get it over DeAndre Jordan's outstretched arm. And because of that, it hit the back of the iron with, a, with about a second left and then bounced in. And I made the comment that, you know, if it didn't require a bounce, it would have cleared the bottom of the net with some time remaining. And therefore, you know, they would have had whatever, eight tenths, nine tenths, maybe a full second left um, to uh, the Clippers would to, to go try to find an answer. And, um, and I think people thought that that was you know, criticism, like, oh, well, how could he, you know, he went a second too early. I can't believe, and like, please, people, that is not at all what I meant. What what I meant is like, wow, in a, in a game and in a season when it has felt like the basketball gods were sort of conspiring against the jazz and like, oh, you want your, your all, you know, your potential all NBA center to play in this playoff game? No, you can't have him. So it just seemed like a moment where Fortune smiled on the Jazz for a second because that rim bounce made it a walk-off buzzer beater shot. Um, and the other thing I was going to say relative to your comments ab- about you know the the timeout or the or the not calling a timeout, you know the thing is, um, to your point about twelve seconds, thirteen seconds, like it's not like you can't take the timeout later if the play doesn't develop like you want, right? So, yeah, bring the ball up, hurry, you know, set a screen. And if it looks, um, you know, if it, if it looks promising, run the play. And if it doesn't look promising, then you can call the timeout. So I agree with you. I think, um, I think definitely the right choice not to call it right away. And the way the play developed, there wound up not being a need to call one at all. Um, by the way, the, the Houston score is final. So that's a 31-point victory for the Rockets. So all of the higher-seeded teams are up one nothing except for the Clippers. In the West. In the West, sorry. Well, so what do you, what do you expect now? Based on everything we're reading, seeing, hearing, um, any, any reason to believe the Jazz will get good news in, on the Rudy Gobert front? And let's assume for a second they don't. Um, sort of what's the focus going forward? Um, including with a game coming in a in a couple of nights in game two. Well, going forward with the Rudy Gobert situation, I think you're, you know, I, I mentioned earlier, I don't have, a, I'd be happy to be wrong, but I don't have any uh, hopes that he's going to be playing on Tuesday night for game two. Uh, when Rodney Hood had, you know, the same, who, who knows about degree of severity, but when he had the same type of injury, he missed 12 days. Um, so, was Gobert's injury more severe, less severe? How does Gobert heal versus how Rodney Hood healed? I would tend to think that unless unless it was going to 
be a risk for his career. Uh, this is the playoffs, so if it's if it's just discomfort and not a risk for a career, then he might be more likely to come back earlier if he if if he's close. Because um, you know, what are you saving it for? Um, so I, I would tend to think we don't see him Tuesday, game two, and maybe we get to see him in in Salt Lake, or maybe it stretches out longer because of the 12 day. It just it just depends. We know very little so far. Yeah, let me read you a couple of quotes from. Um from our managing editor's timeline. Andy Larson is down in LA for KSL.com covering the series. And uh, he had these quotes from today's practice. First, here's Joe Johnson. Um, It's great to see Rudy walking around. He looks normal. Hopefully we can get him back as soon as possible. Um, Andy also said that both Joe Johnson and Joe Ingalls have commented that Rudy Gobert has been walking around the hotel, relatively upbeat. Um, And then here's the quote that that actually I find simultaneously encouraging and terrifying. <laughs> he said, um, here's Snyder on Gobert's time frame. Snyder said, I don't think we're ready to say today, tomorrow, a week, two weeks. I think it's literally that wide open. So for starters, I go, wow, Quinn Snyder has not ruled out Rudy Gobert playing basketball tomorrow. Um, but then by the same token, I go, oh, well, Quinn Snyder has also not ruled out Rudy Gobert playing basketball in two weeks. So, um, so yeah, I, I don't know. I don't know what to expect. Um, bone bruises are not minor deals. You know, um, most guys that get a deep knee bruise miss 13 to 17 games. I know that cause I researched it when Derek favors did his latest knee bruise. Um, hyper extensions are a whole other thing. And, you know, Rudy, uh, Rodney, like you said, missed 12 days with his. So, um, I think it would be pretty miraculous if we saw him in game two. I think I think more likely the long break between games two and three might mean that we see him at some point in Salt Lake City. But but yeah, I mean, e- even Quinn Snyder is saying like, yeah, it, it could be any time, and we're just gonna let Rudy's body tell us what the right t- what the right time is. Yeah. So the good news is they already got this. <clears throat> We were going back and forth yesterday about kind of the history of the game one, game two split. So great, they got the game one split. So if they don't, if they can't win game two, they got what they went for, and then maybe they get Rudy back, or you know, go in and shot off the Clippers again. The Clippers are, I mean, you know, we saw it. They're, they're, they're the taking. They didn't play poorly, and the Jazz beat them without Gobert. So it's, uh, you know, hopefully there's there's a chance there. Overall, looking at the series, you know, trying to detach myself from it, I have to say, yes, the Jazz stole the game, but they also, with the with the Gobert question mark, I'd still say, you know, it'd be easy for them to give one back and then turn it back into a series where they don't have home court, and then it's and then you know, then it's a more risky series when you get down to game five, six, seven range. But uh, oh, for sure, they're in it. They're in it. They're in a good place for the moment. It'd just be nice if they were in a good place with Rudy Gobert going into game two, but I, I don't, I don't expect that will happen. Yeah, I mean, you're right. Like, like that's why I kind of hate the phrase, you know, we stole home court, um, because like at the end of the day, game seven is still in Staples Center, right? Like, if that's the way that the series plays out, then you still have to, you, you know, that's what LA spent 82 games fighting for, and so I'm not ready to say that that LA has, you know, lost their advantage in the series. Um, games three, four, and six, 
are certainly not going to be guarantees for the Jazz, especially if Rudy's still hurt, especially if Favors is, is you know, limited, especially, you know, we, we haven't talked a lot about it, but there are guys that didn't play well last night. Um, so if those struggles continue, um, you know, there are a lot of ways this series could go. And I guess that's the thing with two teams who, you know, from a macro quality standpoint, if you look at records, if you look at point diff, if you look at net rating, the Jazz and the Clippers are really close in terms of overall quality, you know, kind of across the board, which which basically means every night the home team is basically going to be about a 60% favorite, you know, 65 maybe. So if that's what you're talking about for seven games, then this really is a pick em kind of series. And we can't say based on a, a one-game, two-point sample that uh, that the Jazz have done anything decisive yet, and, and I still think that this is uh this is one that utah's gonna have to sweat out for better or worse yeah well you know we've we've been through many many playoff series as fans of course um and uh i i have not yet played in an nba series i don't know about you but no 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 i mean it gets pretty chippy at congregation beth elohim where i play on thursday nights um not to mention the and then there's the word bookstore league in the summertime, which I'm, you know, currently training for. So, um, you know, that's a whole other level, but anyway. So we, we've been around a lot. I mean, you'll get me to the point to say the jazz don't pick up game two. They hold home court and when, win three and four, they're sitting pretty. And I will still be a nervous mess because I'll think, okay, you, you expect they might very well lose game five back in LA. And what if they lose game six, then it'll just, <laughs> just be back to so even with a 3-1 lead i will still be a nervous mess because i'm a fan yeah yeah and, and by the way a, a nervous mess with some pretty good reason right like yeah. like the clippers the clippers can come into your house down two three and you know let's say that that's how the scenario plays out which is far from guaranteed but let's say it goes that way and then the clippers go home and get game five and then they come back to your gym for game six down two three the clippers can win that game you know the Clippers can also go the other way where, and we've seen this a little bit as NBA fans, just where things start to go against the Clippers a little bit and, and they go into that mode where, you know, the refs are out to get us or the, I don't know. They just, they do have a little bit of a picked on mentality at times, whether it's, you know, the refs or there was the year of the whole Donald Sterling mess, which, you know, I don't blame them for, by the way, that sucks that they had to deal with their owner making those comments and that becoming public right as they were playing. But bottom line is, you know, the Clippers are a team that has some potential to implode a little bit, um, especially if things are going not ideally, not the way they want. Um, But they're also a team that has been in some of these battles, has been in some of these situations. And by the way, they still have two all NBA caliber guys, um, you know, in your neither neither guy is going to make All NBA this season because they just missed too many games. But uh, but you know, Chris Paul and Blake Griffin are pretty damn good basketball players. Do you think, by the way, we we we're going to talk about this, and I don't think we can you know go full bore on it. But uh, All NBA, you think Rudy's going to make it? I think Rudy makes it, first or second team, most likely, and which is pretty amazing. Guy didn't make the All Star team. But in the West, but uh, I think he he has saved he saved his best basketball for post All Star, 
and uh, he's he's been impressive. And I think people that didn't take notice when it was All Star voting time have taken notice now. At least as far as I can read the tea leaves, the 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 media members who have revealed who they're voting for. Yeah, I haven't seen anyone that didn't have him first or second team. Yeah, yeah. Um, and and uh, it it sounds again reading the tea leaves like. Uh, Gordon Hayward might not be on one, two, or three for second or third team. Um, or maybe he'll sneak in on third team. And then that brings us to a whole other discussion that we don't have time for is this whole idea where those types of accolades are playing into contract offers. Is that right or wrong? I've seen several discussions on that <coughs> on TV lately. And we said, we'll have to talk about that some other day. Well, beyond the, beyond the nebulous question of, is it right or wrong? You have the, uh, you have the very rubber meets the road question of the jazz, you know, like, okay, jazz, you now have an advantage. If he makes all NBA, you now have an advantage where you can offer him 35 million and change as a free agent. No one else can offer him more than 30.5 as a starting salary. Um, so the question becomes for the jazz, is it wise to go to 35 million for Gordon Hayward? I, I mean, it, I think you kind of have to because stuff costs what it costs and you know, he's, he's an all-star and he's a really good player and it would be more costly to lose him. But I think that's going to be an interesting, an interesting scenario if it happens. It would, it would obviously help them retain him and yet at the same time, make the math on, you know, assembling the rest of the roster a lot more difficult. And it's already pretty tricky math. Exactly. But although everybody is, I was looking at the, the Clippers and the Spurs today and just different things that have been rumored for them already, even though we're not in the off season and thinking, boy, everybody's, even with this higher cap, everybody's getting to the point where they have two or three guys or four guys making it that 20 million ish range. And everybody nowadays wants a raise because the numbers just went up. So yeah. you're going to have a Chris Paul opt out it from the 20 some odd dollar, 20 some odd million dollar range. Well, why is he doing that? A, maybe to change locations. We'll see. But B, because now he thinks he can get 30. Yeah. So, and how do you fit that into a $94 million cap? That's what it is this year, next year. I, I don't know the number off the top of my head. But um, you can't pay three guys $90 million and then fill out a team with 10. So. Yeah. Well, the, well, the cap's going to be 101. And that's, and that's pretty tight. Well, that's the estimate anyway. And that's going to be pretty tight. But for the Jazz, I don't think that's even the number that matters anymore because unless – uh, Gordon Hayward and George Hill and Joe Ingles and Shelvin Mack and everyone else, um, unless everybody bolts, the Jazz aren't going to be a cap team anyway. So the number that we should be looking at when we talk about the Jazz's salary construct going forward is $121 million luxury tax. And, you know, we've been told, um, and hey, it's a new day and there are new people in charge, and so we'll see how it plays out. But we've been told for a lot of years that the Jazz just morally can't look themselves in the mirror if they pay the luxury tax because they've gone to those board of governors meetings with the other NBA owners and they've fought for revenue sharing and they've fought for some financial equity for small market teams. And there's sort of a sense that they can't fight for those things and then go spend into oblivion. Um, so they've kind of always said that there's just sort of this spiritual limit on how much they can spend. And it ends, you know, right at the luxury tax line. Um, although I don't know, that was, that was a Larry Miller thing. And, and a lot has transpired since Larry Miller's passing, you know, Greg Miller ran the team for a while. Then, uh, you know, he stepped back and now Steven Starks is running things. And, 
Um, it'll be interesting to see if the Jazz decide that they can go over for the tax for a couple of years for the right team in the right circumstances, or if you know if the answer to that question is no. And again, this is a whole other podcast, so we'll we'll tackle this at some point. But if the answer to that question is no, then all of a sudden you're making some really tough choices about Derek Favors, about Rodney Hood, about George Hill. I mean, you really are in a in a tricky situation, especially if you've just written a thirty-five million dollar check to to one guy and and a twenty-two million dollar check or whatever it is to Rudy Gobert. So, um, this is a this is a big off season, and at least in part, it kind of hinges on that uh, on that All NBA thing. But I'm kind of with you. I think I think enough voters will still um, make room on one of the three All NBA teams for Kevin Durant. And that's just going to make it hard for Hayward because then you're going to wind up with, you know, Hayward, Paul George, Jimmy Butler. You know, you're going to wind up with a bunch of guys fighting over essentially one spot. Yeah. Um, sorry, I kind of went kind of went nuts there, but I wanted to get that point in since we went there. That's OK. I've, I've seen it before. Yeah. Yeah, probably. Um, all right. Well, we'll wrap this one. So for now, thanks for joining this playoff edition of the Salt City Hoops podcast.